Well, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. We do, our God, anticipate this day that we have sung about and read about. We do pray that our hearts would be more and more in tune with that day. That we would be more in harmony with your will as we grow to be like our Savior. Would you now open up your word for us? Teach us this difficult lesson that's from your lips, our Lord, while you were here on earth, now recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. We hear your voice still today by the Spirit of God. And we ask you to teach us as you were trying to teach these disciples of yours about what it means to be great in your kingdom, what it means to be useful in your kingdom, which is to be like you and to be a servant of all. That is so against our flesh. And so we ask you, Spirit of God, to come and teach us, subdue everything in us that is not honoring to our Savior and make us and mold us to be lights in this world salt on this earth to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We'll be finishing the section that we began last week, verses 20 through 28. And we mentioned last week that the overall idea or the title of the message is a shocking lesson on life in the kingdom of God. Now, humility is the essential mark of spiritual life. It's a mark of those who are in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has had much to say about the idea of humility and what a humble faith in Christ and a humble faith looks like. Earlier, he told us that it's like becoming children, that to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we have to be like children. He told them in chapter 18, verse 4, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said in chapter 19, verse 14, after the disciples were trying to keep children from coming to Jesus, he rebukes them and he said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In other words, they are a picture of what it means to be in the kingdom, what it means to enter into the kingdom. And it is at its heart, as Jesus said earlier, to be poor in spirit. It is to recognize we have no spiritual resources of our own, that our sin renders us by nature helpless, guilty, and in need of grace, in need of God to do everything. And it's when we come to that place that self is destroyed, self-reliance is put away, and we're made to rely only on Christ and God's work in Him for us. And Christ becomes everything. He becomes that treasure that is hidden in a field. Pride, on the other hand, is the very foundation of human depravity. Pride refuses to humble itself before God, to acknowledge dependence on God, and pride seeks to live independent from God's authority and God's glory. 
Pride does not yield or submit to God's will. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is a law unto itself. It does not pursue God's glory, but it has the glory of self as its end. It will not give all glory to God. So at the end of the day, then, pride is what marks unbelief, and pride is what marks the kingdom of this world, and humility is what marks faith, and humility is what marks spiritual life and life in the kingdom of God. Yet, Scripture tells us, and experience confirms to us, even the experience of our own hearts, that though those who are made new have been brought to have faith like children, yet Pride so easily resides in our hearts, even as citizens of the kingdom, and taints much of what we do. And so it is in our passage. Though eleven of the disciples had come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, they had come to believe that He is the Messiah, that He is the King of Israel, that He is the hope of God's people, that He is the fulfillment of the covenant of God for the salvation of His people. They had come to understand that to a large level, though they had much to learn. But what they had not yet tasted, what they had not yet experienced, and what they had not yet fully come to understand is the bitterness of their own sin. They had not yet fully tasted their own weakness as they would. They had yet to experience the sight of their Savior betrayed, rejected, mocked, scourged, ridiculed, spit upon, condemned, and crucified. Now he told them it was coming. But it was a reality outside of their comprehension and certainly one, of course, outside yet of their experience. They had not yet come to know its realities. They had yet to experience those things and realize the weight of their sin and the true nature of this sin-bearing ministry of their Messiah. They would, in fact, need to hear the words of a hymn that we sing very often. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? They were not yet there at His crucifixion, and they had not yet come to understand it. And it is our realization of this as it was necessary for them. It is our owning His death for ourselves by faith. It is by seeing our own sin nailed to the cross as it were, our hands upon His head as the sacrifice as He bled and died for us. It is coming to that point. It is coming to that place by faith. Owning Him as our substitute and God that produces the humility of the kingdom of God. And the humility that He's driving them to this morning. Now they would get to that point. As we mentioned, James would in fact be the first or one of the early martyrs of the church. And Acts chapter 12 tells us about his death at the hands of Herod. John would in fact later be known as the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple. But in Matthew 20, they're not there yet. And so we come into verses 20 through 28 with an incredible scene of selfish ambition. An incredible scene of self-seeking glory at the hands or at the mouths of these two disciples. In fact, it was their mother who came, but they also, as Mark reminds us, reiterated the same request that they would be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus gently corrects them. 
And he reminds them that greatness in the kingdom of God is not something that's easy to come by. In fact, greatness in the kingdom of God involves suffering. It involves sharing in the cup of suffering that Christ himself would have to endure. And he reminds them that honor is something that is under the sovereign hand of God. That our very lives are lived under the sovereignty of God and He bestows honor on whoever He wishes. And now He takes us to a final lesson, noting that greatness in the kingdom is not about self-seeking, but it's about self-sacrifice. Let's read from verses 20 through 28 and then we'll go back to verse 24 and 28 and look at that more closely. Begin in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Go back up to verse 24. Verse 24. And let's note then some shocking lessons on life in the kingdom. But before we get to those specific lessons, we have to go through the self-righteous jealousy of these disciples. He says, when the ten heard this, the other ten, the others outside of James and John, when they heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. And this really is a pathetic scene. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how I heard. It could be that this all happened in front of the other ten disciples and they simply witnessed the event. It could be that somebody else witnessed it and came and told them. Matthew doesn't tell us because that's really not the point. The simple point is is that they heard and that they became indignant, or that word could be translated angry, angry with the two brothers. Now, let me assure you that this is not righteous anger. This is not concern about the glory of God and of His kingdom. It's not that at all. As a matter of fact, as we've been reminded already and seen that there was an ongoing discussion apparently among these 12 disciples about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. This was not a new argument. This was not a new desire that popped into the heart just of these two. It was ongoing Mark 9, 33 through 34 tells us of an argument while they were traveling on the road. Who is going to be the greatest? And there he informs us that when Jesus asked them about it, they remained silent. Why? Because they knew that this was wrong. They knew that this was not the right heart to have in the kingdom. That's almost humorous. However, 
It's more serious when we consider on the very night of his Passover, the very night of that meal that we're going to celebrate this morning about when his body was broken and when his blood was spilled for his own, when he was the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the world, that they were having the same conversation about who was greatest. Luke twenty-two twenty-four. So they are indignant when they hear this. Why? Because in reality, they're only upset that James and John beat them to it. They really wanted to be great themselves. And here James and John beat them to the punch. They got a head start on them. They got to him first. This is not, again, righteous anger. It is self-righteous anger. And it is in all of them. There is that secret desire that to be first. There is that secret desire in them, though not as expressed or expressed as crassly as with James and John, to be first among them, to want the exalted place of honor in the kingdom of God, to want the chief seat at the table. And frankly, in this way, they're not acting much differently than the very Pharisees that Jesus is going to have constant conflict with. We'll see in chapter 23 that they wanted the chief seat at the banquets. They wanted the long flowing robes that exalted them among men. And so they're displaying that same kind of attitude here. And really it's sad. These are the twelve disciples And lest we think this same sin is not in us, I think we can very easily identify with them with only a little bit of thought. Maybe if we came at it from this direction, how do we feel if we're slighted for a place of honor, especially if somebody gets it before us? One of the truest questions to ask ourselves about where our heart is in terms of honor in the kingdom of God is how do we feel when we're treated like a servant? How do we feel when we're treated like a slave? If we really believed that, then we would accept it because we would see ourselves as no better in the first place. But that's not how they were viewing themselves here. And so, what does Jesus do? And He is a constant display to us of kindness and of patience and of greatness. If I know my own heart and probably most of us here, we would be extremely annoyed annoyed and lash out at them and want to come down with them as a hammer. But that isn't what Jesus does. Look at verse 25. It says, But Jesus called them to himself. Jesus sees this as an opportunity to teach them. And he's going to address the foolishness of their selfish ambition, yet with the gentleness of the Lamb, as the Lamb, and gentleness as our Savior. So he calls them to himself and he says to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, he's saying, look guys, you're acting just like the wicked fallen world. You're not thinking or behaving any different than those who utterly reject the kingdom and are outside of the kingdom. You're you're behaving like a Gentile, which in a Jewish mind was not something that was good. To behave like a Gentile was to be... Uh, It was a remark of uh, disdain for them. It was a humbling remark. He says, you're not behaving any better than them. And so he lays out before them the pattern of the fallen world that they're emulating. He says, rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And here he really has in mind political leaders, kings and monarchs. As a matter of fact, in a parallel statement in Luke 25, he'll refer to them as kings of the Gentiles. 
He's saying that, look, you are adopting the perspective of a fallen world that is fundamentally self-serving. We, by nature, love power. Power can be intoxicating to the world. And when it's received, it's used to rule over men. The idea of lord it over can have the idea of of dominating them, of exercising a rule that is not compassionate and serving, but is controlling. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. When he identifies the kingdoms of the world, how does he do that? In Daniel and Revelation particularly. As beasts, leopards, lions, an indescribable beast. He's saying essentially that you're acting like that. You're acting like those kingdoms of the world that are like beasts to be slaughtered and to destroyed. You're, you're taking on that attitude and it should not be named among you. The rulers of their day were known for excessive abuses of power and wealth. If you ever take the time to read Suetonius' 12 Caesars, he chronicles, he's an ancient historian, the lives of these 12 Caesars, and they are debauched beyond belief, violent beyond what you can imagine, wicked beyond anything that we even see today, as terrible as much of the films and things are. And there was in Roman politics a a constant struggle for power, not too much different than our own political system. And Jesus is saying, look, you hate that in the Romans, and yet here you are displaying that very same attitude yourself. I think if we were to think of a biblical example of this, many might be popping into your mind. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, stands out to us as the one who demonstrates the pride of the fallen rulers. And if you remember in Daniel 2, Daniel comes and interprets the dream to him, this dream where there was a statue that had a head of fine gold. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of fine gold. You are the king of kings and the lord of lords. You are the one who is exalted above men. And so what does he do? Well, the only natural response of a fallen heart. He makes a statue like the dream. And he says everybody needs to fall down and worship it. Which, of course, the true people of God would not do. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what did King Nebuchadnezzar do? He became enraged and he wanted to throw them into a furnace of fire. And that's the kind of attitude that Jesus is illustrating here. And he's saying, look, guys, you're acting just like that. He says not only do rulers exercise their authority over them, but the great men... The great men, or rulers lorded over them, but great men exercise authority over them. And here he's referring not so much to political power, but those who are great, they're distinguished among men by means of wealth or power or prestige. And he's saying, when men attain to that position, they use it as a means of exercising authority, not to serve, but as a means of exalting themselves. And unfortunately, this is a temptation even for those in the church. In 1 Peter 5.3, he has to use the same language speaking of elders. He says that they are not to lord it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This isn't just a, a back then temptation and sin. This is something that can infiltrate our hearts and Jesus is calling it out and he's exposing it and saying it's not so with a true servant of Christ. And so he gives them two shocking lessons, and the first one is this, that life in the kingdom works on exactly the opposite principles of the world. 
Life in the kingdom works on exactly the opposite principles of the world. Look what he says in verse 26. It is not this way among you. You're not like the world. You were called out of the world. You're no longer under the dominion of Satan, but you've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so you are to act differently than them. He says, whoever wishes to be great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be your slave. In other words, greatness in the kingdom is not measured by the amount of authority that you have or recognition you received. It's measured by how much you lower yourself to serve others. That is exactly the opposite of the way that the world thinks. One old commentator said it this way. To give us a mental mental picture, he says, it's an inverted pyramid and the believer is at the bottom. And that symbolizes the position of the Christian with simple trust in God and love for all men. He continues on his way to mansions of glory. Jesus is essentially saying that the way up is the way down. In the world's perspective, it is a triangle like this. You start down here and you work your way up to the peak. In the Christian life, it's different. You may start here with the pride in your heart, but the direction of your life is to work yourself down, to go down and down and down, lower and lower in views of yourself and in service to others. And this cuts through the natural tendency of our fallen hearts. But the issue here isn't even so much the pursuit of greatness. You know, that's not even the main issue here. The main issue that he's getting at and that he's driving at is this, is how you define greatness, how you think of greatness, what you consider greatness to be. That's the real issue. And he's saying in the kingdom, it runs on a completely different track than in the world. It's running towards a completely different goal. He's not simply saying, look, guys, you can have the greatness of the world, but here's how you do it. He's saying you have to completely change your view about what greatness even is. And once you do that, how you pursue it will change also. There's a great difference between greatness in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The world seeks greatness in the eyes of who? Men. Seeks greatness in the eyes of men. The Christian, we are to seek greatness only in the eyes of God. The world seeks to be admired by others, seeks to be loved by others and adored by them. The Christian seeks to be what? Pleasing to him, pleasing to him alone who purchased us by his own blood. The world wants to hear, you're great, you're awesome, you are exalted. And a Christian wants to hear only what? Those faithful words, well done, good and faithful servant. True Christian service is not to get ahead in the world, but it is to give all glory to God and to serve Him only. And so Jesus says, here's two ways in which you go about that. You want to be great? Then you need to redefine greatness as serving God and hearing only from Him that you have lived a life pleasing to Him. And to do that, it looks like this. Look what He says in verse 26. If you wish, whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant, shall be your servant. The idea of servant here is that of serving or meeting the needs of others. It's a common word. It's from which we get deacon or minister. It is the idea of simply meeting the needs of others, of seeing yourself as one who serves others, not receives service from them. Now, there were many kinds of servants in the ancient world. There were household servants. There were servants who worked in the field. And and some actually had more prestige than other servants. But at the end of the day, a servant is what they were. 
And they would perform all kinds of duties. And though a servant was not a slave, he retained some personal right, yet his task was simply to do this, to do the will of whoever was over him. And the servant was often given the menial work that others did not want to do. And I can assure you of this, that particularly in their world, a servant was not a picture of greatness in their eyes. It was demeaning. It was something below a person. It was something that you would have attained or desired to get out of, not to go into. Now, if I were to ask you, however, who was the greatest biblical example of servanthood outside of Christ, who would you say? You'd probably say Paul. I think somebody said that. You'd probably say Paul, and I would agree with you. He is undoubtedly one of the greatest saints in the kingdom of God, and yet none demonstrated the heart of Christ in servanthood as he did. Look over at 1 Corinthians 3.5. Let me just note to you here three ways that he de- or two ways that he demonstrated that. First of all, because he was a servant, very much unlike James and John, he did not see his position as apostle and his ministry as something to advance his own personal honor. He didn't see it as something to make his eye, himself great in the eyes of others. Interestingly, that's what the Corinthian church wanted to do. They were trying to line up with the teacher, whoever was the most exalted. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. And most in our world would, and many of the leaders we see today, would embrace that and form their own little faction and form their own little fan club and then go off in that direction, but not the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he was a servant. Look at verse 5. What is in his Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was calling, causing the growth. Look at verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. He was utterly unconcerned about preeminence. He was utterly unconcerned about being exalted in the eyes of men. He wanted only to please Christ. He wanted only to please Christ. Flip over a few pages to 2 Corinthians. He provides for us another example of servanthood. Not seeking personal glory. 2 Corinthians 6. But a servant is one then who embraces personal suffering and loss to meet the needs of others. Because Paul was a servant, he didn't avoid a high cost of serving others in the kingdom. He embraced it for the good of them. Look at verse 3. And what a contrast this is to the proud Corinthians and so often the pride that is in our own hearts. He says that his ministry is described in this way, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but working, but in everything, commending ourselves as what? Servants of God. Servants of God. Now, how does he describe that? He describes it in this way, in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distress and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love and the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's the heart of a servant. That's the heart of one who is great in the kingdom of God. 
That's the heart of one who saw his life not as a means to advance himself, but as a means to serve others in faithfulness to his king. It's the mindset of meeting the needs of others, not just your own. It's intentionally looking for ways to serve, and it does not consider any task beneath you, anything too menial. It is to make decisions based not on what is convenient for yourself, but what is helpful and encouraging to others. That's the life of a servant. He says, but it's even more than that. If you wish to be great, be a servant. But hey, let's take this further in verse 27. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now, a slave is different from a servant in this way. A servant retained some rights of their own. However, a slave had none. A slave was completely owned by their master. They were considered to be property. As a matter of fact, in some old documents, a slave was referred to as articulate equipment as opposed to an ox, which was inarticulate equipment. They were nothing more than a beast, something to be owned, something to be worked, something to be sold. A slave is someone who did a study on this, describes someone whose person and service belong wholly to another. And the idea of slavery was, quite frankly, repugnant to a Jew. And it was repugnant to a Greek. And it was repugnant to a Roman. They did not see that as something exalted, but something to be hated. As a matter of fact, the Jews were so offended in John chapter 8 when he uh, implied that they were slaves. They said, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Of course, they said that foolishly. They were at that very moment under the oppression of Rome, but the idea is that the idea was very distasteful to them. A Roman and a Greek and a Jew prized freedom. And though slavery was common, it was hated. It was the lowest position in their society. It was the lowest position in their culture. They could be sold as property without regard to their desires. They were often beat and whipped and scourged regularly just to be made an example of their need to obey every wish of their master. Now, Jewish slavery was slightly more, or quite a bit more, humane, governed by the laws of the Old Testament, but it was slavery nonetheless. And even in the best situation, a slave was the last, was the last. An ancient Greek writer said this, how can anyone be happy when he is the slave of anyone else at all? And that's the thinking of the world. And that, quite frankly, is the kind of thinking that these disciples would have had when they heard Jesus say these words. How could a slave be happy? What could be great about being a slave? And yet Jesus says, not only is it to deny true fulfillment, but that is the path to true fulfillment. That's the path to true joy in the kingdom of God. To be first in the kingdom is to be, in Mark's words, slave of all. It is to completely submit your rights, your wants, your pleasures to the service of others in your service to Christ. Again, Paul is a great example of this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he made himself a slave to all men that he might win some. Now in reality, however, being a slave or acting like a slave isn't really an extra position that we take on. It's not something really that we add on to our Christian life. In reality, to be a slave and to act like a slave is simply to live in light of who we really are in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. You are no longer your own. 
Your life does not belong to you, and my life does not belong to me. If we belong to Christ, He is ours, and He is ours, or we are His completely. Jesus Christ is Lord and Master. He purchased us from the slave market. We're slaves in His kingdom. And the problem is, is that we still think of ourselves in terms of servants. That we still retain some rights of our own. Yes, we should serve others, but only as far as I'm willing to go. And that's not the picture of what it's like in the kingdom. Our Lord and Master Jesus commands us to serve and to love one another. It's not an option. It's a command. We don't decide whether we're going to love and serve one another. We decide this, whether we're going to obey or disobey the Lord. You see, we have to change our thinking. We are slaves of one another or slaves to one another and slaves of Christ. And Christ commands us to love one another. He commands us to lay our life down for one another. It's only an issue of whether we're going to obey Him and we're going to pursue that. Now, I imagine most everyone in this room agrees with that in theory. But we have to ask ourselves, how often do you deny yourself for someone else? How often do you put aside your personal rights or pleasures to serve someone else? How often do you submit your plans to be an encouragement and a participant in the life of the body of Christ that you're committed to? How often do your own interests supersede the needs of others? Those are humbling questions, but this is what Jesus is getting at. And this makes us uncomfortable, and it exposes our selfness. It exposes our self-will, and that's what Jesus is confronting. Listen to one person's description, and I quote, The cost of true greatness is humble, selfless, sacrifice, sacrificial service. The Christian who desires to be great and first in the kingdom is the one who's willing to serve in the hard place, the uncomfortable place, the lonely place, the demanding place, the place where he is not appreciated and may even be persecuted. Knowing that time is short and eternity long, he's willing to spend and be spent. He's willing to work for excellence without becoming proud, to withstand criticism without becoming bitter, to be misjudged without becoming defensive, and to withstand suffering without succumbing to self-pity. That's the heart of a servant. How do we fare? How do we fare? And this is counterintuitive to our flesh because at the bottom of our sinfulness, our Sinful part of our humanity is what? It's self. It's self. It's countercultural and it's counter to our own natural desires of the flesh, but it's what it means to be in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of heaven. Now, all that being said, you and I do not have the spiritual capacity to serve Christ like this. We don't have it of ourselves. We don't have the ability to do this of our own self-will. And if Jesus stopped right there, if he just stopped right there and verse 28 wasn't there, there could be the strong temptation to launch into a pattern of religious moralism and say, well, all I need to do then is start being more humble. And all I need to do then is start being more of a servant. I'll sign up for more things to do and I'll find another thing to do. But that's not what he's getting at. That's not what he's getting at. And if our service to Christ doesn't go any deeper than simply a command to be obeyed, then we are in the camp of a religious moralist. And we are in danger of being self-deceived. Self-righteous people work very, very hard, but for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivation. This kind of life of service, this heart of self-denial for the glory of God cannot come from ourselves. It has to flow from our union with Christ. 
It has to be produced by the Spirit of God in us who allows us to look at Christ and to gaze on Him and to see His sacrifice on our behalf. To see His death and His resurrection is for our sin and to love Him and then respond as He was, as a servant and a slave of others. It has to come from Christ. It has to come from Christ. You have to be compelled by who He is and what He has done. And so that's where Jesus takes us in verse 28 and gives us another shocking lesson. First lesson is that life in the kingdom works on the opposite principles of life in the world. And secondly, that God demonstrates self-sacrificing love for His own people. Look what he says in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Look at that little word there, just as, or phrase, just as. He establishes here then Christ as our example. Christ is our example and our foundation. He is the pattern that we're to conform to. He's the pattern. When we look at what it looks like to live a righteous life, we look to Christ. When we look at what it looks like to be a slave and a servant, we look at Christ. Christ is the goal to which we aim to attain. Listen to 1 John 3.16. I'll just read it. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. As he was the sacrifice for us, we, beloved, are to be committed for our lives to be a sacrifice for his glory for one another. Unlike the rulers and the kings of the earth, the Son of Man who deserved preeminence taught and demonstrated what service is in the kingdom of God. And the disciples were slow to get it, and so often are we. But he spared no links to teach us and to demonstrate to us what it means to be a servant in his kingdom. You're familiar with this. I'm just going to mention it for sake of time. What did Jesus do the very night that he went to, or he was going to be betrayed, that he was laying his life down as the Lamb of God? What did he do? Did he become introspective? Did he become depressed and self-pity? Did he become anxious and worrisome and tell everyone just to leave him alone? He needed to be by himself? No, that's not what he did. Why? Because he was a servant. Because he was a slave. That's why he came. First, or John 13 tells us this, that when they were sitting around the table at the Passover meal, Jesus, knowing that he was going back to the Father, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin. And we can hear the stunned silence of the disciples as all of this is going along. There's not the chitter-chatter, but as he got up from his seat and he began to unclothe himself, and as he began to gird himself with a towel and wash their feet, it was dead silence. Why? Because he was doing something that none of them were willing to do, first of all. They were humbled, they were shocked, they were amazed. And it says that, or it doesn't tell us that he said anything. He simply goes from one disciple to the next and to the next. And it says he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was regirded. The only words came from Simon Peter. And he said, Lord, you wash my feet. 
Jesus said, you do not know or do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. You'll know, in other words, after the cross, after the Spirit, after I've risen from the dead, you will understand what I'm doing. And more importantly, you will understand and begin to have the heart that mirrors mine as I do this and as I serve you. And so he goes around the table and he teaches them even of his own betrayal. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now this example alone is significant to teach us. This example alone is significant enough to remove every excuse that we would have to fail to do a task of service for another. Jesus, in this act, crowned the most menial act of service with the highest crown of glory and honor. Here, the Son of God took on the position of a slave to do the most menial task. But the point is more than that. The point is more than that. And it's pointing to something greater. He didn't lay aside his garments to wash only their feet, but he was picturing that he was going to lay aside his own life to wash them from their sin. And so he says here in verse 28 of Matthew, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. And Jesus is essentially here in verse 28 giving the theological interpretation of everything that he he had been saying back in, for example, 17 and 19, when he says he's going to go, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be crucified. Those are events that here he interprets, and by the way, he's saying that's for you. It's for you. In other words, the terrible events that are coming are my suffering in your place. I am your substitute. I'm doing it for your salvation. In doing that, I'm demonstrating the true heart of the Messiah, the true heart of your own God, and the true heart of greatness in the kingdom. The kingdom. This is why I'm going to do that. This is why I'm laying my life down. It is to be a ransom for many, for you. Now, the basic idea of ransom is a price paid to release someone from bondage. This is a dramatic picture of our depravity. This is a dramatic picture of the market of slavery, of spiritual slavery that we were born into. This is a common description, actually, of us. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read a few. In Romans 6, when he describes what Christ did for us by dying and rising from the dead... When he describes what change took place as God applies the work that Christ did for us to us. He says that you become no longer slaves of sin, but slaves to Christ. Look at what he says there. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old son was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, before then you were slaves to sin, but Christ has released us. He says later, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
He says later, for you were slaves of sin. Or when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. We have to own the fact that when Christ is destroying the kingdom of the evil one in Revelation 19, we came into the world part of that kingdom. We were slaves. We were bound by our sin. We were held by the bondage of our iniquity. We were dead because of our love for fulfilling our lust. We were chained to sin's power and we were under its condemnation. Paul describes us as children of wrath and we needed a redeemer. And that's the picture here, is that's who we were. That's the condition to which, into which we were born. But the Messiah came to release us. Now, Jesus does not specify, interestingly, who the ransom is paid to. Some thought, for example, that some in church history and even today teach that the ransom was paid to Satan. That's the ransom, uh, the ran- the, uh, the ransom to Satan theory of the atonement. And I hate to shock some of you, but that's what's in Chronicles of Narnia the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Who is he paying the debt there? Anselm, who's supposed to be Christ. He's playing it to the white witch. He believed in the ransom to Satan theory of the atonement, and he was wrong. Jesus is not saying that a ransom was paid to Satan. Our sin is against God, not Satan. It was the Father who crushed him. It wasn't Satan who crushed him. In fact, it was Satan who tried to prevent him from going to the cross because he knew that it would be his destruction. Now, while the analogy of ransom isn't perfect in every way and it isn't exact, the emphasis here is not on who the ransom was paid to, but simply this, that his life given as a sacrifice was a sufficient payment as the means to release his people from their bondage to sin. The emphasis is on the price he paid. It was sufficient. Yes, it is right also, however, to say that the price of our redemption was owed to God. It was owed to God. It was God's justice that must be satisfied. It's God's wrath that hung over you and me. It is to God that all men are accountable. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 9.14 describes it in this way, that Christ offered himself without blemish to God. To God. Who was it that he was going to suffer at the hands of? It was the Father. And yet his payment satisfied justice. He met the conditions of the law. And it is by his death that you and I are released from our bondage to sin. You have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. That's why we sing that song. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. Notice here that he came to give his life, his life, It's not only of his existence. It's not only of the fact that he breathed. It is every part of his life, every part of his being was given as a sacrifice. His time, his effort, his desire, his energy, his everything was given as a sacrifice for his people. It was given on their behalf. The entire time of Jesus upon the earth was a demonstration of him giving himself for the good of others. He made himself a slave. He did everything he did for the purpose of obeying the Father. In accomplishing our redemption that we could share in His glory. Now, while this is an incredible statement of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, Him dying on our behalf as our substitute, Jesus is actually giving it for a different reason. He's not making simply a statement about salvation. He's making a statement about the kind of life that His people are to demonstrate that He Himself 
demonstrated. He's giving us an example of self-sacrifice that is to mark our own lives and the reality of our being in the kingdom. Let me end with a text in Philippians that kind of brings all of this home for us, one you're familiar with. Philippians chapter 2. He's writing here, Paul is, to a church at Philippi. They are having disunity among themselves. And so what does he do? He addresses the fact that they are not to live with selfishness, empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourself. And again, if you leave it right at that, all you have is moralism. All you have is do better, do more, do more, act more Christianly. That's what you should do. More imperatives. Stop doing that. Start doing this. But that's not what he says. He grounds it again in Christ. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you need to think and you need to feel in a way that conforms with the one you claim redeemed you from your sin. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of the man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice that he did this. He humbled himself in complete obedience to the Father and love for those whom the Father had given to him. And yes, he will be exalted. Yes, he will be exalted above all others and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet he achieved that greatness by going to the greatest lengths of suffering and humility. Now as we come into the Lord's table, we are remembering that. We're essentially saying we're identifying with that kind of life. We're identifying with that unity that we share in Christ. And let me tell you, this is an amazing thought. We read about the glory of Christ when he returns in Revelation 19. But you know, Christ serving his people doesn't end when he was resurrected. What he did around the table that last night that we're going to celebrate in remembrance here in just a few moments. But listen to what Luke says in verse 37 of chapter 12. He says this, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he, speaking of Christ, will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Christ whose body was violently broken, whose blood was violently spilt on our behalf, when he comes in his kingdom, when he comes to share this great supper with us, he will once again take on the position of a servant and serve us, the sinner. Serve us, the guilty. Serve us, the redeemed. And as we anticipate that time and the meal that we're going to share, even now, we need to commit ourselves to live this life that Christ demonstrated before us. To make sure that we have as our motivation the life that was given for us in Christ and confess any sin that we know in which we have failed to demonstrate this. Let me pray and then Ruth will come up and play for us and then we'll prepare our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, our Lord Jesus, for this clear teaching and demonstration of what life in the kingdom is to look like. Forgive us of our sin. 
Forgive us of our selfishness and our self-will. Forgive us of our failure to humble ourselves beneath others. To think ourselves in reality better than you, our Savior, when we will not meet the needs of others, where we will not deny ourselves to honor you. Make us more like you, our Savior. Make us more aware of the grace that we've received, that we could be transformed to model that grace to others. Help us now as we gather around your tables to have hearts that are right before you, that there could be the appropriate confession of sin and the rejoicing in the celebration of you who gave yourself as a ransom for our sin that we might be in your kingdom forgiven and blood-bought children. If there are any here who don't know you, and there are, I pray that you would convict them of their sin even this morning, that you would show them the foolishness of the life that they're living outside of you, and that you would bring them to embrace you, Christ, as Savior and as Lord. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
speaking in anticipation of the coming resurrection and in light of Christ who died and rose again for him, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That is the heart that Jesus was calling his people to. And again, it is a heart that can only be Known by those who know Christ as Savior, who have denied themselves, taken up the cross and followed Him, who have become poor in spirit, whose lives are marked by mourning over the sin that remains in them, who wants with all of their heart to be righteous as Christ was, who wants to live the life that Christ lived out of love for Him. And so when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we are proclaiming His death until the Lord returns, but we are also committing ourselves as His people to live as His people. And as we take this body which represents His broken body and we drink this wine which represents His blood spilled for us, let us remember what He calls us to. Let us remember the death of Him who was and is everything to us. Paul said, For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. Also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. The covenant that comes with the Spirit of God. The covenant that comes as a result of Christ taking on flesh, dying and rising again for His people. The covenant that brings us into His eternal kingdom, His blood-bought children. The covenant that He filled, fulfilled the requirements of for us. He's saying, This cup represents that. It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's do so. Our God, again, we ask you that you would remove whatever veil lies over our eyes and our hearts and clouds the true glory of your work for us in Christ. And give us a clearer vision, a clearer understanding, a clearer sight in our hearts of all that you have done for us in Christ. Mold us and humble us and transform us that our fellowship would be different, that our lives would be different, that our trust and our hopes and our desires would be manifestly different than those of the world, that our love and our trust would be so clearly shown to be in you who died and rose again for us and that your love would control us. And that we would live not for ourselves, but you who died and rose again on our behalf. We thank you again for your word and for the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.